All right, we're on lecture seven, part number one. If you remember, what we left off with last time was coming to the realization that an action potential on its own is not a means of communicating uh, information about the intensity and duration of a stimulus that was detected by a neuron, but instead, uh, it is the action potential frequency which is a means of, or the means by which neurons use action potentials to communicate information about stimulus intensity. So intensity is communicated by number of action potentials occurring over a specific time period, what we call the frequency. And action potential frequency is uh, given in the number of action potentials per second, which we call hertz, or HZ for short. So when we talk about frequency, we talk about uh, hertz, number per second. Now, what kind of variations do we see in frequency? within a neuron. Well, it, it can be very, actually over quite a wide range, depending upon, obviously, the intensity uh, of an external stimulus which a neuron is detecting. So it can vary from less than one hertz, one action potential per second, and obviously, if there's no stimulus, then there could be no frequency at all, or zero hertz. But up to a maximum of about 400 hertz. So this is approximately 400 hertz, 400 action potentials per second. So there's a wide range of frequencies that a typical neuron can generate uh, depending upon the intensity of a stimulus. Now, frequency as a means of coding for intensity of a stimulus is discussed in the book on page 100 in the text. So make sure you read that section on page 100 about strength of a stimulus is coded by frequency of action potentials. So the way that this works in terms of communicating information about intensity from one end of a neuron to another is that we have the stimulus intensity, which then determines the magnitude of the graded potential, right? Because of the relationship between stimulus intensity and the percentage of stimulus-gated channels which are triggered to open in the dendrites. And the magnitude of the graded potential, if the graded potential is depolarizing, 
then it determines the action potential frequency generated at the axon hillock. Right, and that's the key relationship between the graded potential and the action potential is that the higher the magnitude of a depolarizing graded potential, then the greater the depolarizing current that enters the axon hillock. And that depolarizing current then, the strength of that depolarizing current as it enters the hillock, then determines the frequency with which action potentials are generated there. Uh, and in this simple scheme then, in terms of, right, this is the relationship of information coding on intensity. The magnitude of the graded potential, we talked about magnitude, but keep in mind that this graded potential, it also has a duration right so the stimulus duration determines the duration of the graded potential so let's let me just erase this Uh, I'll move this over. There we go. So the duration of the stimulus determines how long those stimulus-gated channels stay open, and hence that determines the duration of the graded potential. And it's important to understand that the duration of a graded potential can be for many seconds. Because a stimulus, right, can, can last for many seconds. Now, how does that affect action potentials? Well, as we said, an action potential, any individual action potential has a fixed duration because of the properties of the voltage-gated channels. But because that graded potential duration is for multiple seconds, it can trigger multiple action potentials. And the rate at which that happens is dictated by the magnitude. But the duration of graded potential, again, that's if it's depolarizing. Determines uh, how long the action potential frequency uh, lasts, right? The duration of that frequency. As long as that grade potential current keeps coming into the axon hillock, it will continue to generate a specific frequency, which is dependent upon the magnitude of the graded potential. So in this way, information about Intensity and duration 
can then be communicated by action potentials in terms of frequency and the duration of that frequency. All right, so that's information coding. And the long distance transfer of information from the axon hillock to the axon terminal of a neuron. Now let's ask the question, which uh, has been touched upon in the labs, how fast do action potentials propagate along an axon? How fast is what's referred to as the conduction velocity? of an action potential. And Sherwood talks about this in the book from page 100 through to page 102. So make sure to read about that. I'm only going to go over this uh, somewhat briefly. So in different neurons, what you see is that conduction velocities can vary from one neuron to the next. So they're not all, the rate of propagation is not the same in every neuron. And it typically varies quite a bit from a slow of about a half a meter per second to a maximum, and this is in humans, human neurons, to a maximum of about 120 meters per second. So quite a wide range. And to put this in perspective, if one neuron were conducting action potentials at a half a meter per second, let's assume that the axon was or is a million microns long, how long would it take an action potential to move from the axon hillock down to the axon terminal, given that it's conducting at a half a meter per second? Well, in this case, it would take 2,000 milliseconds, or two seconds, to move from the axon hillock down to the axon terminal. So to propagate the full length of the axon, two seconds through one neuron. Now at the other extreme, for these very fast conducting uh, neurons, conducting at 120 meters per second, if you assumed also the same length, a million microns long, here it would only take 10 milliseconds to propagate from the axon hillock to the axon terminal. And that's actually really important because if you think about your ability to respond to some stimulus that occurred, whether it, it originated outside the body or within the body, 
the speed with which you can respond to that stimulus is importantly determined by the conduction velocity of the neurons that are uh, communicating information about that um, stimulus. So the faster the conduction velocity, the more quickly you can respond to a stimulus. So response times to stimuli can vary depending upon the specific types of neurons that are involved in detecting and communicating information about the stimulus. So what determines uh, the inherent rate at which this propagation occurs in different neurons? So the conduction velocity is Really, there are two factors affecting this. Let's say is affected by two things. The first is the diameter of the axon. Right? How large? How large is the axon? And if I can spell correctly, so this is varies between different neurons. Typically, from about a half a micron in diameter to the largest neurons in the body, which are maximally about 20 microns. So the physical size, not the length, but the, the, the diameter, physical size of the axon is important in affecting conduction velocity. And the larger diameter axons lead to a faster conduction velocity. Right, and obviously the diameter of an axon is, of a particular neuron is fixed. It doesn't change once a neuron has developed. So the conduction velocity itself within a neuron doesn't vary because of that, right? So the diameter is fixed, therefore the conduction velocity is fixed based upon that diameter. But a second important factor, which is uh, of a major influence on conduction velocity is uh, the presence or absence of what's called myelin. Along the axon. So axons and neurons come in one of two forms. Many, uh, actually most, uh, the, uh, most axons in the body are myelinated. So we can have myelinated axons or unmyelinated. And the presence of myelin increases conduction velocity 
by about 50-fold over an unmyelinated axon of the same size. So this increases the conduction velocity by about 50-fold compared to an unmyelinated axon. Now, what is myelin? Well, myelin is is essentially, well, why don't I do this? Instead of saying myelin, let's talk about myelination. Myelination refers to the uh, descriptive term of myelin around an axon. When an axon is myelinated, this refers to essentially the repeating axon segments uh, that are covered by, and by covered, this, this is oftentimes referred to as insulation, so we could say insulated by certain types of glial cells. Right, an axon, a neuron has very long axon that the composition is you have the plasma membrane, right, with all the voltage-gated ion channels and the uh, sodium-potassium ATPase and the leak channels. But surrounding um, much of myelinated axon are these glial cells. These glial cells bind to specific segments of an axon, and then they wrap themselves around that segment, and that forms the myelin. And typically, you know, an axon that's hundreds of thousands of microns long can have hundreds, if not thousands, of glial cells uh, wrapping around small segments of the axon. And the, collect the collection of all those glial cells that wrap around the axon is the myelination. And I can bring in a picture here from the book, which is this one. All right, so this is figure 411 on page 101, showing the basis of myelin. All right, so in A here, they're showing a myelinated, uh, what's referred to down here as a myelinated fiber. The fiber simply refers to the axon, which is long and thin. So it's oftentimes called a fiber. And around these segments uh, of the axon are the specific glial cells that are wrapped around. Right, so the myelin sheath refers to the glial cell coating surrounding a specific segment of the axon. 
And each one of these individual sheaths here, right, is formed by a different glial cell. And you can see they're showing, all right, a typical glial cell may wrap around um, one millimeter length of axon or a thousand microns. But the glial cells, uh, and so down here in B and C, they're showing how the glial cells form this uh, or wrap around a segment of axon multiple times and how that forms the myelin. So there are two basic types of glial cells that form myelin. So there, there are multiple subtypes of glial cells, and the two types that actually form myelin are the Schwann cells and the oligodendrocytes, which I'll write here in a second. But the other thing I'll just point out about this picture is the fact that, uh, as shown here, uh, in what are called nodes of Ranvier, there are exposed segments of the axon membrane that are not covered by this myelin sheath. And this is magnified up here in this inset picture. So right here, we've got one glial cell forming myelin around a particular segment of axon. And then over here, we have a second glial cell forming an, another sheath around the axon. But in between those two, there's a bare region of the axon, which is called a node of Ranvier. And it's only in that bare node region where the voltage-gated sodium and potassium channels are concentrated, which allows for an action potential to be generated at the nodes. And underneath the myelin, there are few, if any, voltage-gated channels. Now, the fact that voltage-gated channels are only localized to these nodes is essentially the reason why the rate of propagation of the action potential occurs about 50 times quicker than in an unmyelinated axon. Because the action potential does not need to be regenerated at every segment of membrane, but only at the nodes where the voltage-gated channels are. And because that regeneration process occurs only at a very small segments of the axon, the rate of propagation is much greater. All right, so that's figure 411. So as I said, the two types of glial cells which form myelin are the Schwann cells are one type. And these form myelin in nerves of the peripheral nervous system. Peripheral nervous system is basically any neur neurons, axon that is not found in the brain or the spinal cord. So that axon is going to be part of the peripheral nervous system. And in that case, the Schwann cells are wrapping around the axons. 
And the other type is the, of, of glial cell is the oligodendrocyte. And this forms myelin in any axons within the brain and the spinal cord. What's called the central nervous system. Uh, if you want a bit more information about this, you can look at figure 412 in the book on page 102. It shows the, uh, the conduction of action potentials at each of the nodes and how that increases the overall rate of conduction velocity. But I'm not going to get into this in any more detail. All right, so that's conduction velocity. And as I said, the rate at which that propagation occurs importantly determines the rate at which information about a stimulus is going to be communicated in the body, right, between one neuron and the cells that it's communicating with. And in the broader picture, that rate of conduction velocity determines how quickly you are able to respond to a stimulus. Now, broadening our perspective a little bit. Neurons, importantly, coordinate the activities Uh, virtually all other body systems. Remember, the nervous system, I said, is or functions as sensor integrator components of regulatory systems. And the nervous system then, through the individual neurons that are detecting stimuli, are the reason why the nervous system as a whole functions as a sensor and integrator. And that function of neurons as sensor integrator components is by means of action potentials allowing communication between cells. And when neurons communicate with the cells in other organs, that allows those neurons then to coordinate the activities of those organs to produce some type of response to the stimulus. And this is absolutely essential for the nervous system to function as sensor integrator components.
of multiple extrinsic regulatory systems. And what I'm referring to as essential is the ability of neurons to generate action potentials to communicate information about a stimulus. And just to impress upon you this essential nature of, of this basic function of neurons. So the inability of neurons to generate action potential will rapidly lead to your death. Cause death within minutes if this is if neurons don't have this ability. And I'll give you a couple of examples of uh, toxins that are produced by certain organisms. that interfere with the ability of neurons to generate action potentials. Uh, one example is a toxin called tetrodotoxin. So tetrodotoxin is found within the glands of the pufferfish. as well as the porcupine fish. And the toxin itself is actually produced by a bacteria that um, grows within a, a particular gland of these fish. Now, there's another toxin called conotoxin, produced by the marine cone snail. And ingestion of only a small amount of either of these toxins will kill an adult-sized human within a few minutes. Now, what do these toxins do? So both of these are very potent inhibitors, so they inhibit voltage-gated sodium channels. Right? These are molecules that have that bind very tightly to voltage-gated sodium channels, and when they bind to the sodium channel, they prevent these channels from opening even if the axon hillock or any segment of an axon depolarizes to the threshold potential. 
So despite perhaps a depolarizing current entering the hillock, when either of these toxins are bound to the channel, the channels won't open, the neurons can't produce action potentials. Now, tetrodotoxin, uh, it is, you, you see fairly regularly in the news how it kills one or two people a year, if not more, because of eating contaminated sushi, which was prepared from the puffer fish. So puffer, puffer fish are actually a sushi delicacy, particularly in Japan, but also in other places. And if the fish meat from the puffer fish gets contaminated with the tetrodotoxin, which is closely associated with the actual meat that's being ingested, if it gets contaminated, it only takes a very small amount uh, to kill a person. All right, so it's common that... Um, people are killed by this toxin every year. Now, what kills you when you, if tetrodotoxin or conotoxin gets into your system? Well, ultimately, you think about the process of breathing, ventilation. Taking a breath, inspiring to bring new air into the lungs. Every time you take a breath to inspire, This requires contraction of specific muscles, called inspiratory muscles. So it requires muscle contraction. Now, the muscles of inspiration are only going to contract if the neurons that, that communicate with those muscles generate action potentials. To tell the muscles to contract. Right? Muscles can't inherently do that on their own. Well, skeletal muscle can't. And so if tetrodotoxin or conotoxin is present and they prevent these neurons from generating action potentials, then inspiratory muscles can't contract. You can't breathe and, right, can't bring new oxygen into the body, can't get rid of excess CO2. And so within a few minutes, you'll be dead. So death by paralysis, the inability to contract skeletal muscle. And this is just an example to illustrate the crucial nature of this fundamental electrical signal called the action potential. And the importance of the action potential in triggering communication with other cells. 
Now, with this said, there are actually medical uses. for inhibiting action potentials in neurons. So there have been compounds, man-made compounds, which have been synthesized, which take advantage of uh, the selective inhibition of voltage-gated sodium channels. So there's a drug called lidocaine that maybe you've heard of often used by dentists to, that are injected into the gum to numb the gums before they start you know, drilling out a tooth or pulling a tooth right, to prevent pain. So lidocaine is also an inhibitor of voltage-gated sodium channels. And there's a related drug called Procaine, or also known as Novocaine, which is often used for um, injecting around a cut before a doctor goes in to make stitches. Right, so whether a dentist use it to numb the gum or perhaps a, a surgeon uses it to numb the skin before um, stitching a wound, this is also an inhibitor of voltage-gated sodium channels. So it has similar properties to lidocaine. All right, so this the ability to inhibit these channels can be used therapeutically in certain circumstances. And the reason that these drugs don't kill you, like for example, tetrodotoxin does, is because they're much weaker inhibitors of voltage-gated sodium channels. Typically then, then if a, a lidocaine or procaine is injected, let's say below the skin, well, the, the drug is only going to inhibit uh, voltage-gated channels within neurons within that localized region where the injection took place. So it's not going to affect or inhibit critical neurons responsible for breathing. Right? So it's a much weaker inhibitor. And in that way, though, if you block or you prevent the ability of certain neurons to produce action potentials, that can eliminate the sensation of pain. And that's what both of these are used for, right? In order for you to perceive pain, well, neurons need to generate action potentials to then talk to other neurons in the brain. And if the neurons that are detecting, let's say, uh, the stimulus of, of a needle underneath the skin as a sur surgeon begins to stitch a wound, 
then uh, you don't feel that pain. You, that, that information can't be communicated to elicit pain. So in this way, these drugs can take advantage of, uh, of the ability of neurons to generate action potential to be used therapeutically. All right, so this ends part one of uh, this lecture, and we'll continue on uh, talking about how action potentials then trigger communication between one neuron and another cell. All right, continuing on with lecture seven, this is part two. So here's just in a nutshell, uh, a, a succinct summary of the crucial nature of action potentials. Action potentials are first, the means by which neurons transmit information about a stimulus over long distances from the axon hillock down to the axon terminal. And that communication of information about a stimulus is crucial for part two, which is what we're gonna talk about now, and that is that action potentials initiate neuron communication with other cells. They alter cell function, uh, particularly the function of the axon terminal of a neuron in specific ways that leads to cell-to-cell -cell communication. And this takes us to section 4.4 in the book on synapses and neuronal integration. And really the neuronal integration is the basis for the nervous system functioning as an integrator in regulatory systems. So it all starts here. All right. So action potentials initiate communication with other cells. Now those other cells, it could be communication with other neurons or it could be communication with other cell types. And the other cell types that neurons can communicate with are skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle in the heart, smooth muscle, which is found in virtually all organs, and any type of endocrine or exocrine gland. It just depends on the neuron. Does it communicate with other neuron or with a different cell type? And particularly when neurons communicate with these other cell types here, Right. This is where the coordination of body systems occurs. Uh, 
How about we say of the activities multiple body systems when neurons communicate with other neurons this is really where the integrator function occurs of regulatory systems Now we're going to start off by looking at the specifics of neuron-to-neuron -neuron communication. And I'm going to draw two simple neurons here. Now, where the axon terminal of one neuron forms a close association with the dendrite or cell body of another neuron, this region is what's called the synapse. with the dendrites or the cell body of another neuron. That's the synapse. All right, so this is a specialized region of communication based upon this close association between these different components of these two different neurons. Now, the neuron who, whose axon terminal is part of the synapse is what's called the presynaptic pre neuron. That would be this one, right? Because here, the axon terminal is part of the synapse. And that's what I'm simply drawing as this little triangle here. Now over here, the neuron whose dendrite or cell body is part of the synapse is called the postsynaptic neuron. And I haven't drawn the dendrites protruding out, but just imagine that, that they're there and the axon terminal forms comes in close association with the dendrite of this postsynaptic neuron. Now this process can continue where a third neuron we can add, and now there can be another synapse right down here. So now the postsynaptic neuron of the first that's part of the first synapse becomes the presynaptic neuron for this second synapse. 
call this synapse number two, if you like. All right, so what neuron is presynaptic and what neuron is postsynaptic depends upon what specific synapse is uh, being considered. All right, so neuron, this neuron in the middle can be or is both a pre- and a postsynaptic neuron depending upon which synapse you are considering. Now, when neuron, neurons are arranged in this fashion, where they're one right after the other, essentially, where the axon terminal of one then uh, closely associates with, with the dendrites of a next, and then that second neuron, its axon terminal, forms a close association with the dendrite of a third neuron. This is what's called an in-series arrangement. of neurons, right? They follow one after another, and that's a, a serial or in-series arrangement. And this is a basic way that neurons are connected together in the nervous system, in series, one after another. And when communication occurs between these neurons that are arranged in series, the communication predominantly occurs from the presynaptic neuron to the postsynaptic neuron. So there's a directionality to the communication. Predominantly from presynaptic to the postsynaptic neuron. Pre to post means the presynaptic neuron is doing the communicating, is communicating information. The postsynaptic neuron is receiving that information. That's pre to post. And then in turn, neuron number two here, right, the communication also goes from pre to post. So there's a directionality to the communication. And that directionality of communication is a reflection of the unidirectional nature of how action potentials propagate. So this directionality of communication is based upon action potentials propagating unidirectionally. from the axon hillock to the axon terminals. And that typical unidirectional physiological propagation uh, is what's referred to as uh, um, orthodromic conduction. The name escapes me there for a second. Orthodromic conduction. That's the, the normal physiological direction of communication from the hillock down to the 
axon terminal. Uh, the opposite of that, which doesn't nor typically occur or doesn't occur physiologically, but it can be experimentally triggered, is what's called antidromic conduction of an action potential, which would be from the um, further down the axon towards the axon terminal, where the action potential propagates up towards the axon hillock. That's antidromic. And this can be done experimentally, but not doesn't occur physiologically. Antidromic conduction. So what we're interested is how action potentials trigger this communication at this synapse region. And that's the first part of section 4.4, starting on page 102. Uh, so this starts on page 102 and goes through page 113. And I do recommend that you read this entire section because it's really critical to understanding the nervous system and how the nervous system function. And that entire nervous system function is predicated on this synaptic communication that occurs between neurons. Now, besides the, how the simplistic way that neurons are arranged in series, right, one arranged right after another, so the pre-communicates with the post. There are uh, variations on this theme. So some neurons can be arranged or can have, why don't we say, a convergent arrangement. where two or more presynaptic neurons communicate with a single postsynaptic neuron. If we draw a simple postsynaptic neuron here, and let's highlight a few dendrites sticking out here. You can have multiple presynaptic neurons communicating with a single postsynaptic neuron. All right, so that's a convergent arrangement. Now, an alternative or the opposite to this is a divergent arrangement of neurons. Right, and these arrangements uh, how neurons are connected together form the basis of how the overall response that a postsynaptic neuron is going to have to the activity of presynaptic neurons. Now, I've shown that, or at least stated, that any given neuron usually has multiple axon branches and so therefore have multiple axon terminals. So let's draw a presynaptic neuron that has 
three axon branches forming three axon terminals. Now each of those terminals then can communicate with a different neuron, right? can form a synapse with a different neuron, and this is the basis for a divergent arrangement of neurons. Single presynaptic neuron communicating with multiple postsynaptic neurons. All right, three basic ways neurons are arranged. Divergent arrangement, convergent, and a simple in-series arrangement. And there are permutations of these that lend themselves to more complicated communication. But in whether or not the arrangement is in-series, convergent, or divergent, the basis of what happens at the synapse is essentially the same. So what we're going to do is take a closer look at the synapse. And let's say we come, well, let's go back up here to this one, since I've drawn a dendrite here. We're going to take this region up and magnify it and look at it in a bit more detail. So let's draw an axon terminal of a presynaptic neuron here. Postsynaptic dendrite, we'll draw like this. So here's our dendrite. The small region that separates the presynaptic axon terminal from the postsynaptic dendrite is what's called the synaptic cleft. Right, and it's almost always the case where the axon terminal doesn't, the membrane of the axon terminal doesn't make physical contact with the membrane of the dendrite. So the small gap separating these two neurons or these two components of the neurons is the cleft. And that synaptic cleft right, is interstitial fluid. So there's interstitial fluid separating these two neurons. But they're very close together. Let's talk about some properties here of this uh, synapse. So axon terminal first. The axon terminal contains, on average, typically anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 or more synaptic vesicles. just packed within the axon terminal. 
And a synaptic vesicle is a small lipid bilayer membrane structure within the cytoplasm of the axon terminal. And within the synaptic vesicle, they contain what's called a neurotransmitter. which I'll abbreviate as NT, right? So the neurotransmitter is a molecule specific, specifically synthesized by the presynaptic neuron. And then that neurotransmitter is packaged into these synaptic vesicles. So let's come back up here. We'll draw these vesicles inside the terminal. And they're just jam-packed in here thousands of them. So each of these then are the, say, synaptic vesicle. Containing neurotransmitter. All right, second fact here. The axon terminal plasma membrane. So you find another type of voltage-gated ion channel that is um, localized within the axon terminal membrane. And these are the voltage-gated calcium channels. And this is in addition to the voltage-gated sodium and potassium channels that are found in the axon terminal membrane. So voltage-gated calcium channels. I haven't talked about calcium yet. Calcium is a fourth important ion, right? We've talked about sodium, potassium, chloride, and now we're bringing in calcium. Uh, it's an absolutely crucial ion for many important physiological things that we're going to talk about. So let's talk about the concentration of calcium in the interstitial fluid. Calcium concentration typically averages about 2 millimolar in the interstitial fluid. Lower than potassium, sodium, chloride. But then if you look in the cytoplasm of a neuron, concentration of calcium is extremely low. And on average, it's about 0 0.00005 millimolar within the cytoplasmic space. If we wanted to simplify this, we could write, well, this is 0 0.05 micromolar or 50 nanomolar. But in any event, right, it's an extremely low concentration. Now, what's critical here is if you look at the concentration gradient for calcium. 
the difference in concentration or the ratio of concentrations between outside and inside the cell. This is about a 40,000 fold gradient. Right? It's an enormous gradient, concentration gradient. So obviously there is a massive chemical force that is going to drive calcium influx by diffusion, right, from outside the cell to inside the cell. So this is favoring calcium diffusion into the terminal if the membrane is permeable. Now in an unstimulated neuron, the calcium concentration is so extremely low, partly because there are virtually no calcium leak channels present. So neurons have few, if any, calcium leak channels. And so therefore the resting permeability of the uh, axon terminal membrane to calcium is extremely low, much lower than, than sodium. All right, so that's calcium. Now, let's bring in an action potential. We know that when an action potential is generated, right at the axon hillock, it propagates along the entire length of the axon to the axon terminal. And when that occurs, the axon terminal membrane is going to depolarize. When that happens, so it depolarizes the axon terminal, This triggers opening of, guess what? The voltage-gated calcium channels. And the calcium channels, these calcium channels have a similar threshold potential to the sodium and potassium voltage-gated channels around minus 50 millivolts. So when this occurs, then, there's going to be a rapid calcium influx into the axon terminal. And in fact, the calcium influx that occurs causes a significant increase in the cytoplasmic calcium concentration. up to um, 0 0.001 millimolar, or even higher, which, if you want to put this in micromolar, is one micromolar. All right, that's at least 
a 20-fold increase in the calcium concentration that occurs uh, because of the action potential. So let's go back up here to our diagram. We'll show the action potential propagating down in red. So here's our action potential. Right, that's the depolarizing current that's triggering action potentials along each segment of the membrane as it moves. Comes into the terminal, depolarizes the terminal, and we get opening of calcium channel, voltage-gated calcium channel. Let's draw one of these right here. Just to highlight uh, one of these calcium channels. And when these channels open because of this depolarization, there is a rapid calcium influx because of the action potential. And this leads to the significant in, in oops, go back to purple. Significant increase in the calcium concentration in the cytoplasm because of that influx. Now, critically, calcium serves as, or I should say that there are a number of different proteins in different cells which can bind to calcium ions. And this is also true in the axon terminal of neurons, is that the increase in calcium concentration in the cytoplasm activates uh, specific calcium binding proteins in the axon terminal to trigger exocytosis of these synaptic vesicles. Typically then, when one action potential occurs in the axon terminal, this will trigger exocytosis of only a very small percentage of the total vesicles. And on average, it's of about 10 vesicles undergo exocytosis. And the important point here is that this is a very small percentage of the total vesicles present in the terminal. All right, so coming back up here to our diagram, let's show a few vesicles fusing with the plasma membrane, what happens is when this calcium comes in, that calcium binds to specific proteins on the synaptic vesicles, and that causes these vesicles to come down and fuse with the plasma membrane. So let's draw 
some vesicles fusing here. This is the process of exocytosis. And we'll get rid of the line here. Just to show that this is in fact exocytosis occurring. And when this happens, then the neurotransmitter contained within these vesicles is released out into the synaptic cleft. So the neurotransmitter comes out into the cleft. So neurotransmitter is released by the process of exocytosis. And that release it triggers a response in the postsynaptic dendrite. And in that way, then, the presynaptic neuron has communicated information about the stimulus that it had detected up in its dendrites. Now, just in terms of the conveying information about a stimulus, particularly the intensity of the stimulus that was detected presynaptically, So let's say detected by the presynaptic neuron. Results in, let's say, a uh, certain action potential frequency in that neuron, right? It's firing at a certain rate, let's say 20 hertz. But if the intensity goes up, the frequency goes up, right? Now, that frequency then is encoding information about the intensity. And then that information is then conveyed to the downstream postsynaptic neuron. So the intensity is then conveyed to the postsynaptic neuron through this neurotransmitter release. Through neurotransmitter release. Now, how does neurotransmitter release convey information about intensity of the original stimulus? All right, so my time's up. And the, the essential feature here is that as action potential frequency increases, remember, each action potential triggers some vesicle release and so some neurotransmitter release. Well, 
if you have multiple action potentials occurring in a specific time, then as the frequency goes up, this is going to lead to an increase in the rate of neurotransmitter release from the axon terminal, which is going to lead to an increase in the amount of neurotransmitter in the synapse. And that then is conveying information about intensity. And this is going to affect the magnitude of the response in the postsynaptic cell. And that's what we're going to talk about. We'll continue to talk about this in uh, the next lecture. But the key here is that the amount of neurotransmitter in the synapse is going to be determined by the action potential frequency. And in that way, the neurotransmitter is a chemical messenger that is communicating information about the original stimulus intensity that the neuron detected. All right, I'll leave it there.